0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Jacked ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: From Wondery and Universal Music Group, this is a special episode of Jack The new Jack Swing. Yes, there's something funky that you can cling.
2: All you gotta do is come on and sing. One, two, three. I made you new Jack Swing.
1: I'm Carla Hall, and I'm just psyched beyond words to take over from the great Taraji P. Henson. You may know me as a Top Chef finalist, a host on ABC's The Chew, and hopefully from my Wondery podcast, Say Yes. What you probably don't know is that new Jack Swing music was my damn near everything during and after college in the late 80s and 90s, and it has stuck with me my whole life. I will still bust out Guy on a Friday night. I still bounce in place a little when they start bumping my prerogative at Trader Joe's. And judging by the responses to this show, same goes for a lot of you. But also, like a lot of you, when I started listening to this series, I weirdly knew next to nothing about the music that's meant so much to me for a genre that basically paved the way for everything we call pop music today. Not a ton's been written about it. So hearing it jacked has been an education. And the people who worked on this show will tell you the same thing. They all learned a lot. So much, they couldn't fit it all into six episodes. Like for instance, you've been hearing this tune throughout the show. Heavy D and the boys, Mr. Big Stuff.
2: Rough and tough and all that stuff.
3: I make you dance and friends till you huff and puff. There's just
1: no way... Well, unlike most folks we talked to on Jack, Heavy D didn't hail from Harlem. He was from Mount Vernon, a suburb just north of the Bronx. And so are a bunch of other major New Jack artists whose stories we didn't get to tell you. of the
3: when you come to me and say take it like I'm your stuff.
1: So today... We're going to make up for that, because you're about to hear my conversation with Kyle West. He was raised in Mount Vernon from age nine and wound up producing one of the biggest New Jack records of all time from another Vernon act, I'll Be Sure. His debut LP, In Effect Mode, generated five hit singles, spent seven weeks at the top of the Billboard R&B charts, and earned him a Grammy nomination, Kyle's going to tell us about his Mount Vernon crew, how Al's multi-platinum debut came to be, and what it was like to be a part of the early days of Andre Harrell's legendary label, Uptown Records. And we also just get to reminisce about great music of the 80s and 90s. Tough job, but somebody's got to do it.
4: At these family dinners, dysfunction is served. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life. Oh, I'm sorry, do we embarrass you?
0: Dinner next Friday, everyone.
4: Wouldn't miss for the world. Dinner
2: with the parents, season 1. Stream free only on Freevee.
1: All right, Kyle West. Hello, hello, hello.
3: Thank you, guys, for having me. I'm 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 honored. Thank you very much.
1: No, I'm honored. I feel like you're taking me down back down memory lane. So I'm just going to jump right in. And for those of us who don't know, tell us about Mount Vernon. Like, what was it like in the mid '80s when you were there as a teen?
3: Wow. Ah, uh, you know, it, it's the the interesting thing about Mount Vernon was we all there's only one high school you know there so we're all in one place we kind of grew up together and then all of a sudden you know the first one was heavy d you know heavy d got a record deal and then everybody in mount vernon thought they could do the same thing you know and um people you went to you know class with and everything everyone is now making their demos and uh my cousin, which was Albie Shore, is Albie Shore. Um, we decided to to do what everyone else was doing and um, make our demos. And it was a very creative time there. And uh, Eddie F., who was the DJ for um, for uh, uh, Heavy D, he brought us to his manager, and which was Andre Harrell, uh, God rest his soul, uh, uptown. And that's how we kind of got things going here in Mount Vernon. You know, between Heavy D and I'll Be Sure, that was, it was so much excitement here and so much promise. And um, it was a very exciting time here in the late 80s, mid to late 80s.
1: But your mom and dad were both originally from Harlem. So you, you spent time there too, visiting family. So what was Harlem like in comparison to Mount Vernon at that time?
3: Yes, my, my, both my parents are from Harlem and, uh, you know, we would go, you know, see the grandparents and, you know, that that cultural energy of, of New York City and and of, of the culture of the black people up in, you know, uptown, which is Harlem. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of money flashing around, but just the pride of the culture, the creative culture, uh, the music, the books, um, the, the basketball, the clothing. Everything was right. That's where it all started, right there in Harlem. And then, um, you know, then you go, you know, 20 minutes north to Westchester County, which is where Mount Vernon, New York is. And it's totally different. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you know, houses, trees and grass and lawns and lawnmowers. You know, we just there's none of that going on in Harlem. So it was it was totally different, totally different.
1: Teddy Riley's early hip-hop productions were getting popular in the mid-'80s. What was the first one you remember hearing? Like,
3: where were you? Wow. Um, I remember a record. Um, it was a rap record. It was called Rap's New Generation. And that was the first record that I remember that had this, this had this distinct sound. Then closely after that... Um, uh, what was it, Dougie Fresh uh, and and Slick Rick did a record called The Show, which was a huge oh. record. Huge record. Huge record. And again, it was that sound. It was that same sound. Didn't know who the producer was, but when you did your homework and you said, wait, but this record sounds like this record, then you said, it's got to be the same guy. And um, it was this young, young boy in Harlem, and um, it was Teddy. It was Teddy Riley.
1: What was the sound? I mean, you're saying that sound, I mean, what sounded different about it?
3: Uh, it? It's hard to put your finger on it, but it just sounded different. I guess the other records, especially when you hear them today, they kind of sounded a little, um, oh, wow, just more basic. It wasn't, you know, you, you had, a, you had a, a vibe going, but nothing musically stood out. I mean, you know, Run DMC, they, their record stood out. That you know, Jay, God rest his soul, had a great sound. But here was a guy who was mixing the street and music. There was something musical also, and the drums would hit the the way the you know Teddy would program his drums. Everything about his records just just stood out differently from the eighty eighty five percent of the other records that were out at the time. You know. And you really had to, to, you know, and we weren't really looking at the back of records back in those days. Let's face it. We were, you know, between 15 and 20 years old at this time, we weren't reading the back credits back then, but there were certain records you knew had to be done by the same guy. And, and then rap, these rap artists, they were shouting out, you know, the producers on their records. So that's how you kind of knew who was making what. And, um, that name just stuck, you know. stood out, Teddy Riley.
1: So what else were you and your Mount Vernon friends listening to in the mid-'80s? I mean, what were your influences?
3: Well, for me, I mean, I was a musical child. I, I grew up, you know, my parents, my father played music. He was a musician. So I kind of tended to gravitate to musical producers. Um, in the 70s, it was you know, Quincy Jones productions, you know, those, his records sounded like events. There was so much going on, so many layers. And then in the eighties, uh, you know, Jimmy and Terry, you know, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they put an aggressiveness to their musicality. You know, it wasn't natural, like a, like a, a earth, wind and fire record, or, you know, uh, a Barry White record. You know, You could hear the machines, the tightness, you know, it wasn't a a live band, but just the musicality and the layering that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis did, that's what kind of helped me get my style. You know, being able to make it sound orchestral, but still musical and still aggressive. So I listened to, you know, Loose Ends and um, Michael Jackson, of course, and uh, but a lot of the the Jimmy Jam and the, the the Taboo records, you know, Clarence Avant's label and all those productions, Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle and the SOS Band, that was my thing. Putting all that together was how I learned to do what I what I do.
1: Okay, as you're mentioning all of those bands, I'm like, yes, oh my god, yes, yes, yes.
3: oh my god, them! <laughs> yes. I mean,
1: all, that's all you needed for a party. Okay,
3: exactly. <laughs>
1: Well, you mentioned you mentioned some of the who's who um, who would, who would eventually become the new Jack Axe that you went to school with, and then you mentioned Heavy D. So, what kind of guy was Heavy D?
3: Oh, he- Heavy was a lovable teddy bear. You know, uh, he was a few grades below me, but uh, just everywhere, you know, he was the, the big six foot three, heavy set guy. And um, he made friends so easily. His personality was huge. Um, if, if we didn't see him doing what he did accomplish as a musician, he was going to be doing something with his personality. He he had that back then. Just a lovable guy, was always smiling. He was good to his friends, good to his family. A uh, really, really, really special guy.
1: So describe describe his early shows when... He wasn't well known.
3: Well, definitely call it his. It, you know, again, the producer. You know, he he did work with Teddy, uh, but Eddie F. You know, I've I've known Eddie since eighth grade, and um, Eddie had his own sound. You know, it wasn't as musical as Teddy's, but he was the connoisseur of drums. You know, Eddie F. had every drum machine ever made, so he made sure he created. A, a, a unique sound, also with his records. So between heavy working with Teddy and Teddy Riley and Eddie F, he 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 was made. You know he was gonna definitely you know go somewhere. So um, his shows again, I think he was able to command the stage. So when people saw him up there, you know, a little over he was, so comfortable. You know, he moved. He moved so smooth for his size that people could key in on his confidence as an artist, and that's what they loved about him. So I I think he, early on, you know, the artists that were out there, you know, at the time, LL and all them, they they loved him. They they support. They were bigger than him, and they they would definitely vouch for him any day. And that's what helped Heavy and Uptown as a whole as a company come on, get on. Because um, everything that was starting with have. that's where, you know, you could see that this company and the artists and the producers, they were very confident and very good at what they did.
1: I, I remember seeing videos of Heavy D and this was a big guy who was light on his feet. There is nothing on as a woman. There is nothing sexier than seeing a big guy with twinkle toes.
3: <laughs> that was that was definitely heavy Carla. You know, he he um again, he owned it. He and this was this went way back to high school. He was always so confident in who he was and what he was. And that's what we love about him.
1: I I just love that. I love that. Uh <laughs> So, what brings us to you getting involved in the scene? Tell us about how you started working with Albie Shore.
3: Well, I, as I said before, I was a—you know—I was a musician as a child, and I pretty much quit when I got into high school, junior, even junior high school. I just wanted, wanted to be an athlete, didn't want to be into music anymore. And Albie Shore is my younger cousin, so when he came to live with us for his high school years. um, we kind of dabbled in the music. You know, we had, my father had all the, the instruments. Uh, we dabbled and played around. You know, we had some DJs come over and do some stuff. But once Heavy got into it, that's when Albie Shaw said, you know, Kyle, we really need to do this. Um, we need to go after this. Problem was, I was already in college. I was way down in Louisiana, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I went to LSU, go Tigers. And I'm like, I'm not here. I, I, how are we going to do this? So, when I would come home on Christmas break and summer breaks and stuff, uh, there's only pretty much one summer. We said, look, let's let's make these demos. And um, it was Al just put. He just got out of high school, just pushing and pushing and pushing. And I had all this music already recorded. And um, you know what? He he would, first. He was rapping because he wouldn't be. A, you know, he was a rapper first. And um, I said, look, I can't help you with that. I don't know anything about, I'm a musician. I don't, I don't know anything about rap. And um, he quickly learned and taught himself how to write and write lyrics and arrange. I mean, he did all this on his own. And this is an 18 year old kid. And um, I went back to school for one semester. By the time I came back, him and Eddie F said, look, my manager wants to meet you guys you know and that quickly this happened pretty quick and all of a sudden we met Andre Harrell up at um Uptown uh Enterprises and uh he liked what we had and how we structured and how we kind of all worked together you know again Teddy Riley and, and Eddie F were, were involved and uh, we put together what we did and you know God took care
4: of the rest
0: Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: When we think about New Jack and bringing the R&B and the hip-hop and marrying those two, uh, and at the same time, Teddy and Timmy Gatlin and Guy, they were also fusing the two genres down in Harlem. So why do you think that all of a sudden musicians were willing to put the two together when before it was never the twain shall meet?
3: Exactly. I think the music scene at that time, the mid 80s, you know, there was a movement that was happening. And um, this was all started, you know, with with Russell Simmons and Def Jam. And you can just feel this, this energy of the youth and the urban music coming back and uh you, we were i think at that time musically we were willing to take some chances in the music industry um you know jimmy and terry were doing things more youthful but it just what it didn't represent maybe not represent the hood but it was definitely different from the 70s so i think those producers uh you know teddy and and, and full force those guys they took it upon themselves to say, look, we're going to now make music for the streets. And um, that, that's, I think, what really, especially with rap on top, mus- musically, things just got a little bit more raw and more aggressive. And then when you were making stars with this music, then we couldn't be stopped. That generation just could not be stopped.
1: Tell us about meeting Andre for the first time.
3: Call it. it was funny because, again, I was in college, so I came home for Christmas, and I'm telling my cousin, I'll be sure. I'm like, Al, I got to go back to school in like three days. Where's this guy? You know, <laughs> where's this Andre guy? And it was late one night. He just picked up the phone. He said, Yo, Andre, you got to meet my cousin. He's leaving. He doesn't think this is real. So the Andre said, you guys come down to the studio the next day. And we take the subway and we're supposed to meet him at one building and Andre's not there. We got to get back on the subway and go to another studio. And we finally meet him. He's, well, I finally met him. I'll, I'll be sure I knew, knew him. And I met him at a studio and he was with Molly Mall and they were cutting the Uptown's Kicking It album. And, um, you know, Andre was, is, was smooth. He was the smooth. He's not going to jump up and down about you. He's just going to give you enough. And he said, you know, I, I like what you guys are doing. I think you guys got something special, and um, I want to do something with this. That's all he said. And I ran home and told my parents, oh, Mom, I'm, I want to leave school. I got to leave school. We're going to be big. And Andre didn't say all that, you know. But Andre said, I think we got something here that I want I want you guys to work on. All right. And that was it.
1: So then Andre apparently brings in none other than Teddy Riley to help you and Al polish the record, right? And you all Correct. work on the music together at Teddy's studio in his mom's place in the project, Absolutely. which we've heard so much about.
3: <laughs> all right. So,
1: so tell us about your first day working with him there.
3: That was an event in itself. Um, now he's now he's from Harlem, so I'm familiar. You know, my both my grandparents live in Harlem. So we go down on a Sunday um, and uh, we go down and we got our little parking spot and you know, you know, I hopefully tell you, listen, this is what Teddy, you know, Teddy told his sister, we ain't, you know, he wasn't home. We're like, wait a minute. We just came from Westchester County, <laughs> you know? So we get there 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. And uh, we walk back to the car. We don't, we don't know this Teddy guy. And, and my, I'll be sure of something else. Al goes, wait, we saw all the church ladies. If you know Harlem Sunday, it's church, uh-huh. it's church morning, you know, and, and Al sees says, wait. That's Teddy's mother right there. So he jumps out the car and he goes, Hey, Miss Riley. And his mother probably didn't know who Al was, but she said, Oh, Hey girl. Hey, hey boy. How you doing? Blah, blah, blah. So he goes, oh, come on. So we follow his mother back to the apartment. <laughs> and she goes, yeah, Teddy said he ain't here. He goes, what do you mean? Teddy? Teddy's here. And his mother goes in and sees Teddy. In the back. I said, what you tell these boys for? You ain't here. You know? So that's how we meet them. We're like, Oh boy, this is going to be interesting. And, you know, we, we, we work with him and I mean, the talent that this young man had already at 18, you know, was, was incredible. And he took our demo and just, he just changed it around and gave it an identity, you know, our songwriting and my production, fine. We know how to make a record. We were st- we know, but he gave it an identity. Uh-huh. And that's when we knew that, okay, this, this is something that, You're not hearing on the radio yet, but this is something really. Teddy was excited. I was excited. And when we drove it down to Brooklyn the next day to bring it down to up to uh, Andre, and he just said, well, we got something here.
1: Tell me about the story about all of the activity and all the people in and out of Teddy's place, which is probably why his mother knew that. he knew how much (laughs) work he was doing and people in and out. Um, What happened in the midst of you all trying to get Teddy to... To hear your record, did somebody come in that he lay some tracks for somebody else or?
3: Caller, he did. What was going on? This says a lot about Teddy too. Is that he was this gifted musician, and you know he's a young, a young, he's a teenager, and he knows he has something special. I think his his neighborhood also knew he was special, and anyone that wanted to come in to record, who thought they had talent, Teddy opened up, his his mother opened up the door to say, well, come on in. Let, let, let's check it out. You know, that was the, he didn't push anybody away. And then, of course, he's going to sift out the real special ones. And there were, you know, uh, there was a guy named Omar Chandler was, came in when we were working. Uh, another, I only met him a, a handful of times, but I think he was like a construction worker. And on his lunch break, he would come and do his demo. And he was that good that he could do it that quick. And I think that was, looking back now, I mean, look, I didn't see it then, but looking back now, that was absolutely beautiful because you didn't know who. There was a diamond in the rough that he Hmm. was going to, you know, discover.
1: So I know Andre Harrell thought the big hit on that first I'll Be Sure album was going to be a song called Off On Your Own Girl. But Teddy thought that it was going to be another song. So tell us about that.
3: Well, We, when we went to record with, with Teddy, that's exactly, that was the record that we went to demo with him is off on your own. And, uh, we spent good six, seven, eight hours on it, came out really good. And it was Teddy who asked Al, he said, what about that other record? And I'm looking at Alec, what are the records he's talking about? And um, the owl started singing the hook a little bit, and then Teddy called it the Michael Jackson record. That's what, because there was no title yet. He goes, "That Michael Jackson sound record." <laughs> he said, "Dad, he goes, that record is going to be great." I said, "What record?" Is? I said, "Oh no, 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 that's not even done yet." He goes, "That record is going to be really good." And um, me and Al, we didn't even demo that. We went to the studio, went to the studio, and we rec- demoed it in, and it was incredible. It was incredible. So he believed in Night and Day before, Teddy did, before anybody even really heard it. Then once we put it together, then Andre could see the vision, the, the smoothness, the, you know, the uh, falsetto voice. Um, every, he could now see the movie after hearing the finished version of Night and Day.
1: All right. So, dude, I got to tell you. So that song was blowing up. It was it everywhere in 88, 89. It's the kind of tune that people remember from their proms. I remember it because I was out of college, and it was like the jam. Yes. Um, yes. And, and, so what's your favorite story about encountering it, like out of the wild, so to speak, when you were like, when you caught up, when everybody caught up with what Teddy saw?
3: Now, I'm Carl, I'm going to be honest. We, we were working in one studio. You know, Andre was paying for it. He had Teddy as the producer. I was the co-producer, and you know, we we're working in this this this, this cool studio And I was Chung King, you know, legendary studio. One day, Al, Al didn't even show up. But like, what the heck is he? He's like uptown in 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 Midtown at this like really good studio, unique studio. It's giving him a shout out, and he's working he's working on something else. He's like, yo, cop. Come here, come here. We're gonna, we're gonna. So, we did that first demo by ourselves. Ah. You know, we, he, you know, he, we did a little drum stuff and some keyboard stuff. And we, you know, he asked this guy who was working, you know, who worked at the studio if he could just squeeze in there. And we went at like eight o'clock in the morning before anybody really got there. And we put the basics for night and day down, just us two. And, um, we're like, whoa, this this is sounding a little different than we expected because it became, it was less aggressive, but it was more pop. And we didn't know that was going to happen. So it became kind of like a pop R&B hybrid thing that we didn't see coming. Then we said, okay, go, if, if it sounds like this, boy, wait till Teddy gets on this and makes it urban, you know? And he did his thing and it, it, it took on another life, Carla, but the pop hybrid thing kind of worked better, you know, with no disrespect, Teddy. And I think Andre was like, no, 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 no. I could see this was this was Andre Harrell's vision is that he could hear a record and he could envision what magazine you're going to be in, what clothes you're going to wear, where the video is going to be shot. That was Andre Harrell's magic. So all of a sudden his vision changed. When he heard what me and Al did in the studio alone. Said, Wait a minute, I, I didn't. I'm not. This isn't even my space, you know. I, I'm I'm. I'm hood. This ain't hood now. See, that
1: was y'all bringing that Mount Vernon to Harlem, that was you bringing the grass to the Harlem.
3: Like, <laughs> you hit it on the nose, absolutely. Yes,
1: bringing that grass yes. to Harlem.
3: Cheer, mm-hmm. you know, It was, yeah, it, it, was, it was a little bit more orchestra. And again, we didn't do this on purpose, we didn't know what the heck we were doing but it just became smoother and softer and more pop. And then I'm going to give a shout out to Roe Shamir, who was the engineer. And, um, you know, he was a guy who could bang your head and would, would he mix run DMC, but then he can do smooth too. And he kind of mixed it together and he would do his tricks. And the record became something totally different. I just said, Oh no, I'm switching, changing the plans here. I'm going to Warner brothers. I'm I'm not going to, New York, I'm going to LA, I'm going to give it to this guy, you know, who was Benny Medina. It's a whole new movie now. Wow. And that 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 happened by accident. We didn't go out to do that. You know, Eddie F was there with his he would help us with drums and stuff. And it that's that was the talent of Andre where he quickly just saw something different. And he didn't put out because Al didn't fit in that hood, you know, wearing boots and Riding in Suzuki Jeeps kind of thing. He was like, No, you gonna be in Lamborghinis and Ferraris, you know, you know, wearing two thousand dollar suits. And Ooh. that's where that's what Andre that was where he brought his his magic and uh he just repacked that record helped repackage Al.
1: So how did the Harlem musicians feel about you guys from Mountain Vernon? Now that you have this grassy I mean it's it's clearly different.
3: Yes. They looked at us as being a little softer. You know, we grew up in houses and, uh, you, know, we, we, you know, we had mom and, or dad's car to drive 18, 19. They're like, you know, you guys don't know the grind. Y'all can't write or create anything that's hard because y'all ain't hard. And it's like they kind of, you know, I'm like, so we went out to prove them wrong, you know, um, so they did look at us like we were with them you know um, but you know what the, the talent that we have you know that we had in Mount Vernon um, it wasn't nobody gonna, gonna gonna shut us down you know we could do it just as good as you do it and just as hard you know so you know, we had to earn our stripes and we did.
2: Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus.
1: Another character we followed in this series was guys manager Gene Griffin. What do you remember about him?
3: Carl, I only I only met him once or twice. Uh, from what I remember, he was family of with Teddy, with Teddy Riley. And when Teddy was career started to take off, Teddy wanted representation who was just for him. And um that's how Gene Griffin came into the picture. And Gene was going to make sure his family was taken care of and his investments um were going to be taken care of and he he did it the way he had to do it. It was a little little different than what we were used to. We were all new, but this was the old school music industry and um you know, he 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 definitely let you know that he was there to do business. I can't talk bad because I don't I didn't really know him. I just knew his reputation. And um, he, he did business, you know, the the old school way. I, I'll just, I could just leave it at that. And um, you didn't want to cross him.
1: Okay. Well, know. following up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> following up. On the series, we told the story of how at one point Gene literally smacked Andre Harrell around during a meeting at MCA Records. And you kind of witnessed the aftermath at Uptown offices. In Brooklyn. So tell us about that. Wow.
3: Okay. Well
1: Oh, we went there.
3: <laughs> I see you do your homework, Carla. Yes. Um, it, you know, I, I went I had to go down to the Brooklyn office, and that's where the uptown management was. And I think Andre was still living there. And I went down there and I just got my little brand new car to show off. And I went down there and the office the Brooklyn office was usually like a club. I mean, there was just so much energy. You know, we're rocking in there, and it, it was quiet in there, and I'm like, what? What's going on? And um I think it was uh the general manager, Bob and said, you know, we had a little incident here, and he told me what happened, and I think it was, you know, some details of Guy and, you know, and they weren't happy with something, and, um you know, Gene made it physical, you know, and... And then I'm like, what, are you kidding me? And then I see Andre walk through the hall. And, you know, and this is typical Andre. You know, he's not smiling, but he's always smiling. And he looks at my car and goes, yo, nice car, man, nice car. And keeps going. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what to ask him. But you could tell that something shook up the office. And um, it was some business. And two people handled business a little differently than the other. And something physical did happen. Yes.
1: So once once you realize what had happened, were you shocked, impressed, afraid?
3: Oh, wow! <laughs> Definitely not impressed. I thought, again, we're, we're all kids. We, you know, one lesson we learned early is that there, there, there's something for all of us here. Like, all of us are winning at this company, so we don't ever have to take from someone or, you know. Beat someone up because we go all get ours, and um, I was a little, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, this is a, a a business where you know we didn't make the money yet, but th- this is a big dollar business. I'm like really, that's what, we do that, you know, and um, and these are people who are close. I was I was surprised, call. I, I didn't know that was now again, that was just me being naive, but it I didn't know that this happened in the industry.
1: Right. You're like, wait,
3: are we are we in the Godfather movie? <laughs> <laughs> like what, what just happened? It it, it really and that's it, as I said, this was, you know, this was when things were taking off for the company. So all the artists were working. You know, if they weren't making, you know, records, they were on tour, every so it's like, so what could be that bad that would make People want to come to blows. I didn't understand. Um, but I quickly did understand that it's all about posturing also. And you know, which goes on today in the game that we're in, in this entertainment game we're in now, it's all about posturing and someone just showed wanted to show someone I'm gonna be in control. And that's what happened.
1: So after in effect mode in nineteen eighty eight Yes. Guy's debut album comes out. Bobby Brown's "My Prerogative" comes out. Suddenly, this new jack sound is everywhere. That's right. When did you That's right. first realize you were part of something that was becoming like
3: huge? You know, Carla. I'm, you know, we're all music fans. You know, all of us creative people. We we get into the industry because we're music fans, and these artists that you saw in high school or you bought their records or you learned their dances. Now Andre Harrell is telling that we sure you're about to go on tour with these guys. You're like, wait, what, who, what we're going on tour with new edition and Bobby Brown. Are you kidding me? And that's when you realized that this is, this is real. And then, Call it when, you know, you, you know, in every market, they have the countdowns of the hottest records and you hear your, you know, your Bobby Brown and your, you know, Keith Sweat records. And then at the top of the charts, you hear your record, you know, you hear night and day and you're like, oh my God, (laughs) that's when you realize that you have just arrived.
1: Okay, were well like, <laughs> <laughs> you like back college, back sports?
3: No, but Carla, every time, let me tell you. And again, now I was a temperamental kind of guy. I want things my way, and if I don't, I used to jump up and down. So whenever something didn't go my way, you know, Andre, I want the Yo know, Andre, blah 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 blah. I would always threaten. I'm going back to college. I'm done with this. I'm going back. <laughs> and then there was one day, Andre said you ain't one of the top producers in this industry you're not going anywhere (laughs) and I said he's right he's right he called your bluff he showed it (laughs) so that it it, again call it it happened so fast I think you know you can't tell someone today I mean I was just listening to Lizzo saying look at 10 me took me 10 years to get where I am you know and for us, it was maybe 18 months. And that just shows that God is good. And, um, you know, just everything went well at that time. And um, all of a sudden, you know, you're leaving college and you're about to go on a 60-city tour, you know. And um, uh, it just doesn't happen like that, you know. But it did.
1: So in the series, we dramatize Guy's big kind of coming out live performance at the Apollo in October 1988. I'll be sure was an opening act on that bill and you were there. Yes. What do you remember about Al's performance that night?
3: His first night on the tour. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Now I wasn't there for all the shows, but I do remember that those early shows where yes, he was the opener. Uh, No, he was not opening. See Al Bobby Brown was opening. Okay. And Al was came on before, uh, right before New Edition. And um he Al learned the stage often just he just had to learn quick. It was like there was no warming up. You know, he didn't go rehearse. It was like, dude, you're on tour, get up on that stage. And then he was another one. He his confidence is what won him over. You know, the songs, yes, you know, he, he's a showman. And he just would make women just swoon. I mean, he just opened his mouth and moved around a little bit, and he commanded the performance. And um, it it just that went on for the whole year of '88. Every way, every performance, and that's he knew. Okay, look, I'm not Luther. I'm not going to sing you to death, but my songs are strong, and my presence on the stage is going to is going to win you over. And he learned that that night, you know, every night on that tour. Then when he would come off and and New Edition came on, these were kids also who've been on the stage for like almost 10 years already. And he saw how they worked it. And he learned from watching them every night. And that's what made Albie Shore, who to, to this day, I don't know if he performs a lot as much now, but he is a great performer. That's where he learned it.
1: Oh, I've seen him. I mean, I may have been one of those ladies screaming, but I'm just, (laughs) you know, he gets up there and he looks at that lady's eyes and she's like, oh my God, he's just talking to me. Forget the other thousands of us out there. Um, But back to that, uh, back to that performance at Apollo, Barry Michael Cooper talked on the show about seeing this crazy kind of impromptu car show outside the Apollo with players cruising past the Apollo, blasting Teddy Riley tunes. Do you remember that?
3: Oh yes. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you, you know, Carla, it just again, um, you know, there's always excitement here in New York City and in, in, in Harlem, but just at that time, it was a youth movement. It it was all about the hood. It was the hood was cool now. You know, I mean, you know, the, the white brothers and sisters. Downtown and in the Bronx, they wanted to be a part of this, and now it took on Harlem took on another life, and it wasn't about the old school, you know, with the you know the the, the Frank Lucases and everybody, you know. Now it's about the kids who were putting their stamp on the culture now, and we everybody had to show out and represent, and um, that was one of the first events. You know where it's like it's, this is our time now. This is how we're going to do it, and we still do it that way. Well, they do it. I, 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 I I'm not that young <laughs> anymore, but I'm 56. That's how okay. we st- <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we do it. You know, and that was uh, that was the beginning of that that subculture of that youth movement.
1: But when do you think New Jack started fading out, and why do you think that is?
3: Oh wow, um, things just you know. The, even the clothing, the hairstyles, everything was going back to the, like, the 70s. And, um, you know, a lot of the samples we were using, you know, music kind of slowed down and got a little bit more conscious than it was in with the New Jack records. And more artists came out that were more natural and organic. And New Jack swing was not that. You know, was it New Jack was so you know the 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 speed of the records was all about dance. Now with 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 you know it's starting to slow down a little bit, and songwriters and artists want to 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 kind of give you some more brain food, you know, in the music. And um, it, the two didn't mesh well, you know. So I mm-hmm. think that's what kind of Pushed New Jack to the side, you know, in the in the, in the early nineties.
1: But that said, what do you think the impact of this music is today?
3: Oh, it, it's called it's huge. Mm-hmm. Be- I mean, you know, it's huge because that's where it started. You know, before the mid eighties, to the, the you know the late eighties. You know, all artists. You know, we the Luthers and 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 the Freddie Jacksons and those guys ruled. You know, and they didn't represent the hood across the country you know and this is now we're able to say what we want to say in these records and you know wear what we want to wear and that started it and then from there to even to this day now these youthful artists you know some of these images are way over the top with, you know tattoos on the face and pink dreads but Able being able to express yourself in your music with your music, it started with New Jack Swing.
1: Agreed. So so Kyle, one last thing before we let you go. Okay. You went on to produce or write or remix or play on songs for an insane range of acts. <laughs> from the New Jack girl group, the gyras to PM Dawn <laughs> to yeah. Rod Stewart, to Al Green. But I saw you and Al be sure credited on a 2012 song by ZZ Top. Okay, dude,
3: <laughs> what's the story? Wow, that's a call. That's a good one. That is a good one. <laughs> okay, um, let me see. When we did Night and Day, this look Night and Day just has like nine thousand lives. Forget nine lives, nine thousand lives. <laughs> and I and God, God has 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 just blessed us with this and. There was a rap group in Houston, Texas. It's a good story in Houston, Texas. And they they rapped overnight and day. And they they met untimely passings. And they worked in the same studio as ZZ Top. So this is a bu- this is beautiful ZZ Top for these hip hop artists. They said, "Why don't we use their record to help make some money for their families. Oh. ZZ Top didn't know that there was someone involved on that record before them. So they they put out their record uh ZZ Top and you know what? They shared credit with, with everybody. But um but the record was special enough for ZZ Top to go, look, let me we're gonna do that. We're gonna do that for, you know for the rappers family and um, whoever's involved you are in there too so uh, by the grace of God we got a credit with ZZ time.
1: <laughs> wow wow yes yes well Kyle West you have come a long way and I don't want to say I'm glad you didn't go back to college but I am so <laughs> glad that you followed your path and your genius
3: Carla thank you so much you know I really I, I appreciate you giving me some time and talking to me I really appreciate
1: it oh well, thank you so much for joining us From Wondery and Universal Music Group, this is a special episode of Jacked. If you want to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to binge ad-free. If you have a tip about a story you think we should investigate, Email us at tips at wondery.com. That's tips at wondery. I'm Carla Hall. This episode was produced by Megan Monaco, Chris Siegel, and Rico Galliano. Sound design by Sergio Enriquez. Jack was hosted and produced by Taraji P Henson. Andy Herman and Rico Galliano wrote and produced the series. Consulting creative producer is Timmy Gatling. Associate producer is Melissa Duanez. Additional production assistance throughout this series from Tracy Egbus and Daniel Gonzalez. Consulting producer is Barry Michael Cooper. Managing producer is Latha Pandia. Executive produced by Barrick Moffitt and Daniel Seliger for UMG. Executive producers are George Lavender, Marshall Louis. And Hernan Lopez for wondering.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Jacked ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
4: I have missed these Friday night dinners. Mm-hmm. Hey, welcome to Harvey Graf!
0: At these family
4: dinners, everyone. Dysfunction is served. Wow. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life. It's mom and dad being totally normal. Wow.
0: So dinner next Friday, everyone.
4: Wouldn't miss it for the world.
2: Dinner with the parents, season one. Stream free, only on freebie.